house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Suzanne would do anything to be famous. She's going to be the next Barbara Walters. I believe that Mr. Gorbachev, you know, the man who ran Russia for so long, I believe that he would still be in power today if he'd had that big purple thing taken off his forehead. To be on television. You're not anybody in America unless you're on TV. Was a chance she would die for. You're on. Good evening from the WWEN Weather Center. Weather Center? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that lets our cheetahs run wild and free. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my weather girl, and have we got news for you, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Temperature's rising. It is. Barometer's getting low. Uh, temperature's rising on the career of Miss Nicole Kidman. Did you see this movie when it initially when it was initially in theaters? When I was nine years old, no. <laughs> I didn't either, but I remember seeing it like right when it was new on video. Because I, I, I would have vi- been eight years old, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I definitely knew what it was, yeah. knew what the poster was. I was surprised when I saw how relatively little money it made at the box office. It only made $21 million because it was very heavily advertised, at least heavily advertised on the shows I that I was watching. I knew the trailer. I feel like that, yeah, that trailer I got mean, played I was a the lot. type of little homosexual boy that when I saw that trailer of her saying, life, liberty, and all that stuff. And all the it, rest of it, yeah. Yeah, all the rest of it. I knew that that was funny to me. Yes. I think watching this movie again, there were a few lines that jumped out that I was like, oh, that was in the trailer because I saw that trailer 8 billion times. The part where she goes, you're not anybody unless you're on television. And even that shot of her dancing in the headlights of the car in the rain, uh-huh. I was like, okay, that, so a lot, so much of that trailer, and even the shot of like Dan Hedaya bashing the TV with the baseball bat, I was like, yeah, that trailer was burned pretty heavily into my mind. Which means that in 1995, Nicole Kidman was everywhere because she's also in Batman Forever that year and Batman Forever is the other mm-hmm. movie maybe not the other movie but like the movie that year that I remember was just marketed wall to wall I was uh, that one I definitely saw in theaters but that trailer Dr. was Dr. Chase Meridian honey absolutely she was giving you everything she was giving that. you everything her name sounds like a credit card Obviously, she had done her American accent in movies before this, but I feel like 1995 is the year that, like, Nicole Kidman's American accent is here to stay, honey. Like, that Mm. it really uh, presented itself. It's a very campy version of an American accent that she does in both of those movies. And I feel like elements of that have stayed in her repertoire the entire time. Well, I also watched this weekend... Because um, I wanted something to get high to. Um, I watched Practical Magic, and it's in Practical Magic, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it, in many ways, it has not left her her version of an American accent. There is always a, a hint of camp to it that I 
that I actually really love. And for as much as... I think it's this idea of an American female movie star, too, that must be in her concept of the dialect because it is kind of this very like vixeny breathy yeah yeah and it's like this year 95 that you also mentioned batman forever which is like very true and it's like of like this is kind of is it the beginning of her doing american dialects because it feels Hold like on. let me let she's me portray- look well i'm gonna keep talking while you look yes 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 absolutely uh, Obviously, Dr. Chase Meridian is very Veronica Lake. It yes. feels like her American dialect is of that era of type of screen persona and like, uh, you know, movie star actress. Right. So if we look at like Dead Calm as where she sort of like her last Australian movie, really, I know flirting comes out later, but that had been filmed, I believe, earlier. And she comes to America uh, for Days of Thunder. And I'm pretty sure she's American there. And then she gets that Golden Globe nomination for Billy Bathgate, that sort of semi-dubious Golden Globe nomination for Billy Bathgate. And I believe she's also American there. And then uh, Far and Away happens, where she's quite Irish. (laughs) <laughs> just quite is she quite irish i think We've done I, an episode on that movie i think quite irish as distinct from actual irish i think <laughs> irish in quotation marks um malice the great uh aaron sorkin scripted film malice i feel bad for whoever directed that movie who did harold becker sorry harold becker that i will never credit you for anything on that movie because that is uh, that is Aaron Sorkin's figure. Still got to see this one. Malice movie. And then the 1993 movie My Life, where she and Michael Keaton are married, and oh, yes. one of them dies. <laughs> so a slew of movies where she has an American dialect, but it's still like you know in yes. the microwave. Exactly. Exactly. It's in the microwave on like defrost. It is. It's taken a. It's taken a bit. And then yeah, it really really emerges. In 1995. Great year for her. That was, that, this is the year where she went from, I believe, being primarily Tom Cruise's girlfriend, Tom Cruise's wife, to Nicole Kidman. Like, first and foremost, right? Well, like, we talk about her, her evolution a lot. This is our sixth Nicole Kidman movie, which we will get to it. We will induct her into the Six Timers Club. Um, but, we talk about her evolution a lot, and obviously what a big year 2001 was the, with, you know, the divorce from Tom and sort of emerging into her own. But, like, 1995, commercially and critically, with both Batman Forever and To Die For, is a big, big year for her in terms of her as a star entity. 1,000%. I mean, like, her name is being above posters. Yeah. Like, she's delivering these kind of iconic performances, though. Like, I don't think we appreciated uh, the Batman Forever performance at the time, but like... No, that was definitely seen as just commercial. That was purely commercial, and... Right. Well, and now it's, like, very formative for, like, homosexuals like myself. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yes, exactly. Um, But To Die For on the other side of that was for, you know, my surprise that it wasn't a bigger commercial hit... It was a crucial, crucial point in her evolution, at least in the eyes of critics, and especially American critics, where up until this point, 
more than more more performances of hers than not had been poorly reviewed in Far and Away, even uh-huh. in like I said, Billy Bathgate. I think that Golden Globe nomination was viewed with a lot of skepticism. Um, Days of Thunder, obviously, even like stuff like Malice and My Life were not uh, critical darlings by any by any stretch. And so, To Die For the good the great reviews she got for To Die For were a huge turning point for the way that people saw her. And the fact that she ended up going mm-hmm. on to win the Golden Globe, as dubious as the Golden Globes are, um, it was a major moment for her. I mean, she wasn't in, like... I mean, I guess she probably was in the most, like, critically adored movie in that Globes lineup, but it's like it's not like she has bad competition or something you know like no. there's other performances that the globes totally would have given it to that's a that great globes category for as much as i've never seen a month by the lake so i can't speak to vanessa redgrave's performance in it i think we should pretend that we've seen a month by the lake it could that movie could be about anything and uh we should just uh we should make up our own version of a month by the lake that we have seen we should and and what it is is that for every day in this month by the lake, Vanessa Redgrave has to um, pen a letter to an old love. And mm-hmm. she reminisces about those old loves. Well, and because her daughter is also a floating head with her on the poster, we do see flashbacks <laughs> to this old love. Yeah, or no, wait, it's, it's not her daughter. It's actually Uma Thurman. Uh, why did I think that it was Natasha? Maybe Natasha is in this. Oh, maybe. What if the plot that we come up with to A Month by the Lake is the actual, is the actual plot, plot of to A Month, Month by, by the, the Lake. Lake? Okay, so Uma Thurman is younger her, who was, like, writing letters to her older self at the same time. So Vanessa oh. Redgrave not only is writing her letters to her old love, she's reading the letters to from her younger self to her older self. My mind is going some places. I think you've really, really untapped a lot of potential here. Christopher Nolan's A Month by the Lake. <laughs> oh my god, Christopher Nolan's You know, people, Nolan's a month people by always the lake talk about how Christopher Nolan doesn't write complex female characters, and really, A Month by the Lake yeah, like, people just forget. doesn't get the credit that it deserves. People definitely forget. Um, or perhaps that the lake in question... Is um, I was going to say the lake in question is actually the one that's writing the letter letters for a month. So it's a month by the by lake, like written <laughs> by the lake. What if the lake in question is Lake Erie and uh, Vanessa Redgrave is spending a month at Cedar Point? Um, riding the roller lake coasters. In question is Lake Bell, and it's a month written by Lake Bell. What if the lake in question? is Lake Winnipesaukee, and it's a sequel to What About Bob, where Vanessa Redgrave goes and meets the family in What About Bob. <laughs> what if that? <laughs> Lake Winnipesaukee has truly gooped me. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, let's get into let's What put if a the pin. lake in question <laughs> <No>. <laughs> is Veronica Lake, yeah. who... Uh, uh, Nicole Kidman is playing as Dr. Chase Meridian in Batman forever and and stealing the lunch of kim basinger playing veronica lake a few years later in uh, 
LA Confidential and winning an Fully. Oscar for it. She is a better... Oh, oh, don't get me started on that performance. I don't this think. is your TED Talk. Nicole Kidman in Batman Nicole Forever. Nicole Kidman is a better Veronica Lake as Chase Meridian yep. than fucking Kim Basinger is in LA Confidential. This is your TED Talk. This is it. This is what's going to give you fame and fortune. All right, let's put... God, give me, give me a mock neck turtleneck... <laughs> And a clip-on microphone, and I will do that TED Talk. All right, we're going to put a pin in that Golden Globe lineup for a second, though, because I feel like we shouldn't get to that till we get to the other side of this plot description. But just to sort of set the table, To Die For was, again, I would say pretty major. And felt felt it at the time. It's not one of these movies that, like, oh, we have to look back. And, like, you know who was great was Nicole Kidman in To Die For. Like, this one definitely had a lot of attention on it. And it's going to be exciting, I think, to talk about it. It's a good yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting Best Actress year that ultimately does kind of make sense to me why Nicole Kidman doesn't get in. Yeah. It's confusing to me that, like, the movie wasn't considered beyond Nicole Kidman, but we can get into that. I think part of that may have been in the fact that it didn't really succeed super well at the box office, so it wasn't. Cause it $20 was... million dollars for a movie like this in 1995, though. But a, but it's not an indie. It's a it's a Columbia Pictures movie. Do you it know what I mean? It is a studio movie. Yeah. It, and Gus Van Sant makes it feel like it's not right. a but studio it's, movie. But it's Columbia Pictures, and I feel like the expectation curve on that was probably higher. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really... Um, how long has it been? It had been a while since I'd seen this movie, so it was very fun to revisit it and sort of see some stuff in it that... Uh, reappreciate some stuff that I hadn't maybe appreciated as much before. It's been a while since I've seen it too. I feel like this is always a movie that's in the ethos that like people are constantly rediscovering and talking about online. So yeah. it's like, it feels like, uh, you know, I, I, like, I, I feel like this has always been a movie that it's like, well, we can always do that. We can always do it. And right. we've just decided to do it now. Yeah. All right. So before I kick it to you for the plot description, I'll just uh, lay down the particulars. We are talking about 1995's To Die For, directed, as we mentioned, by Gus Van Sant, written by a sort of legendary Hollywood uh, screenwriter, Buck Henry. At that point, certainly his uh, his reputation preceded him. Starring Nicole Kidman, Matt Dillon, Joaquin Phoenix, Ileana Douglas, Dan Hedaya, Casey Affleck, Allison Folland, Kurtwood Smith, Holland Taylor, Maria Tucci, and of course, Newman himself, Wayne Knight. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival May 20th, 1995, and it opened wide October 6th, 1995. So, Chris? Yeah. I'm going to pull up my little stopwatch if you are ready to deliver a 60-second plot description. I feel like this is going to be weird because the movie is so backwards and forwards in time and, like, what actually happens is not a lot. Indeed, indeed. I believe in you. Okay. All right. Your time begins now. All right. We meet Suzanne Stone. She wants to be an on-air personality. She wants to be a celebrity. Um, but she is, like bound to like news media so she like weasels her way into a local station starting as an assistant but working her way up to a, a weather girl she has bigger ideas for herself so she's also trying to shoot this like documentary about teens called teens speak out what the fuck is this movie about she doesn't even it's whatever she's just following these teens anyway because her husband wants her to just basically be a stay-at-home housewife she seconds. devises to get him out of the equation uh starts an affair with jimmy one of the teens she's interviewing has the teens kill him 
him. And then, like, it goes through this whole thing. The police basically do an entrapment against her. She gets away with it. The teens get blamed for it because, like, she devises the story where they're a drug dealer. And then her husband's family ends up uh, killing her. And uh, Ileana Douglas uh, ice skates over her dead body. And with three seconds to spare. Very good. I had forgotten that Ileana Douglas ice skates over the lake where her body is over the end credits. Final shot of the movie. It's Great final so, shot. It's so vicious. It's absolutely mercilessly vicious. And I, I love it for that. This is also a movie. I love it for Ileana Douglas, to be honest. We're going to have to talk about Ileana, Ileana Douglas, Douglas is rad in this movie. She's really, really good in this movie and does a lot with... Not a lot of what you would consider sort of prime material. She's a lot. She's really on the periphery of this, and yeah, she makes the most out of the screen time. In this she one hundred percent does. Vivid. Um, this movie also teaches you a valuable lesson, which is um, don't follow David Cronenberg to weird places. <laughs> oh, David Cronenberg, my beloved cameoing, David Cronenberg, cameoing as the uh, the assassin as the, the assassin for Nicole Kidman. First of all. Reunite those two, though, I think next year when Cronenberg's movie come out, we need to cherish every second of it because it will probably be his last movie. Yeah. Um, Because we didn't think this one was going to happen. But the like the like sigh of affection that left my body I, when he came I on could screen imagine. because I fully I could forgot. It. Yeah. That. Oh, yeah. He, you know how much I love him. Cronenberg um, cameos really do come out of nowhere because they're they're they end up being very hard to predict uh, because uh, obviously of the ones that come in the movies that he doesn't direct where he'll just like show up in a movie he'll just like you know be or like be on an episode of Alias for no reason whatsoever <laughs> it's great. Um, He's also a distinct-looking guy, but he's not, like, a weird-looking guy. So right. it's not like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, who's a distinctly... If Scorsese shows up in a movie, you're like, holy fuck, it's Scorsese it's immediately. Scorsese. It might take right. you... Because he doesn't he enter this movie with, like, sunglasses? It might take you ten seconds to realize that it's David Cronenberg. It did. It took right? it. I was just like, this is an odd character. Oh, it's David Cronenberg, right? Oh, right, it's David Cronenberg. Um... The structure of this movie you mentioned before you sort of jumped into it is a really interesting structure. And I think credit to Gus Van Sant for sort of bringing this forward where it is both, it's many things. It's, um, it's a lot of people sort of giving portrayals in different forms of media. There are people giving sort of mm-hmm. talking head interviews to, uh, one imagines a documentary being made about this scandalous affair. There are parts of, the story being told by people on talk shows where her parents and Matt Dillon's parents are on some kind of daytime talk show telling the story of this. There is at some point footage of Nicole Kidman's character sort of giving her own testimonials to a camera for, for something that could be either within story, a news report or documentary that she was making herself or could just be like omniscient you know this is how she envisions herself in the world constantly speaking to a rapt audience right and then you get parts of the movie that are just straight up told you know third person 
you know, just a regular movie. It's just straight movie. And, well, and it's some of these flashbacks, mix. you also have to wonder, even if it's, you know, presenting things as they are, if they're also embellished by someone's point of view, specifically with, like, the teenagers, sometimes the way, like, Suzanne is outright villainized when she was probably more, like, uh, subtly manipulative in some way like you always have to question right how much Consider is, the source yeah uh, that like what you're watching is probably mostly empirically true but like what are the details that are embellished from the source right right, right. and she is of course incredibly sort of uh, she makes up her own sort of reality when she's talking to the camera in that way uh, mm-hmm. We should not go too far before we talk about how this was based on a novel by Joyce Maynard that in itself was very closely inspired by the Pamela Smart story. Pamela Smart mm-hmm. was uh, a young woman who, I don't think she was a teacher, but she worked at a school and was married to a guy and started having an affair with one of the students at this high school and convinced slash manipulated this kid to kill her husband. Like that was, and it was a media sensation at the time. There was tabloid coverage everywhere. Um, It was, I believe some of the court proceedings were put on camera in very sort of very early one of the very, very earliest uh, examples of uh, TV cameras being allowed in a courtroom. And this was sort of before Mary Kay Letourneau. This was sort of like proto-Mary mm-hmm. Kay Letourneau before where this idea I was going to bring up Mary Kay Letourneau. Which definitely, like, might have even happened contemporaneously with To Die For. Um, but that... That story and the Pamela Smart story sort of get, like, swirled together to the point where I bet you if you asked... A, you know, person, you know, on the street who was not paying super close attention, they might tell you that, like, yeah, oh, right, Mary Kay Letourneau had her teenage lover kill her husband. Because, like, it's all of these things sort of get swirled into, mm-hmm. um, swirled into the same kind of tabloid muck. And it's interesting to watch To Die For now in its very sort of 1999 perspective, and to see just how preoccupied and unsettled a lot of the artistic community was back then at this idea of how far people would go to be on camera, be on television, to sort of... that It reminded me, there was that line, obviously the line where... uh, Kidman, as Suzanne Stone says, you're not anybody unless you're on TV. And it very much reminded me of that moment in the Madonna documentary, Truth or Dare, where Warren Beatty is like, she doesn't want to live off camera. Why? What is there worth doing if you're not on camera? And that was seen as a very sort of telling moment about Madonna and about the culture at the time. And I think it's interesting to watch this from a 2021 perspective where like we're on the other side of that. Everybody has this already is made that reality television. Right. Like this is the way we all, you know, we're living in the soup of this right now. And it is no longer I think it also a controversial really notion. Dis- yeah. Yeah. But there, there's an element to it, too, where it's like, I think you're kind of describing it in a way that it's like, it sounds a little weird because we're, it feels like we're post 
the discussion that this movie is like having or like the type of satire it's delivering because yeah. it's evolved into this whole other beast with like seven different heads that you could talk about each individual head yeah. you know for weeks on end um but we're but also what I do think Sorry, go ahead. this well I think this movie I wouldn't call it an artifact, but like one of the things that I think helps this movie age so incredibly well um, and keep like people are still fascinated by this movie is that it really distills what this type of fame seeking, what this type of like, you know, salacious media and the consumption of it was specifically in the late 80s. And to the mid nineties, right? Like yes. the emergence of like daytime talk shows yes. like Jenny Jones and Geraldo uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And like it's this isn't quite Springer, right? But like it, No, but it's very know. like Je- you're right, Jenny Jones, Ricky Lake, um like Phil Donahue. Uh, even that like, kind of thing. you know, it, it's the emerging culture of things like that, that I even think of like Tanya Harding and OJ Simpson, you know, that type of tabloid media that wasn't, it wasn't given a seriousness, but like something about the culture, everybody started to care about it. Like when I'm a child, I shouldn't know about the whole like Tanya Harding and OJ of it all, but right. like I knew. And as a seven year old, I had an opinion. And that is, I think, well, but- it, it really gets at specifically what it was like for that era in a way that I think similar like media satires now don't really encapsulate what it is today or what it was for the past decade, you know? Well, and you even look at the last maybe like six or seven years have seen cultural revisitations of almost all of those things. The Tanya Harding uh, situation, the OJ Simpson trial, the the Lewinsky Mm -hmm. uh, scandal, the Clinton impeachment, Lewinsky scandal, all of those things, all of those very mid nineties TV uh, or uh, cultural scandals, which all had a very large, television component they all played out on television Mm -hmm. they all played out in uh in media in some ways or another and they've all been revisited lately as as i think a very like natural sort of like cyclical thing and the in the difference in the way those things are have been portrayed recently and the way something like this something like the pamela smart story was portrayed in to die for is back in the mid 90s as this stuff was still unfolding, there was a higher degree of like the people were still capable of sort of shame and shock about it. Like we hadn't lost our national, we hadn't attained this national shamelessness to the ways in which everything courts media as, as a rule, as a, as standard operating procedure, right? This was still, in the mid nineties, this kind of behavior was still seen as extreme or in some way aberrant, in some way mm-hmm. um extravagantly shameless. And we like we've lost that. You know what I mean? We've lost that sense as a culture now, for good or bad. And um so that makes to die for, I think, really fascinating because it's not just the style of it or the story of it it's the tone the sort of 
omniscient tone of it, which is like, can you believe this shit? You know what I mean? Can you <laughs> believe that someone would behave this way? And now in 21 or 2021, yeah, I'm looking Stone's at it and I'm like, behavior seems, uh, uh, you know, garden variety. I, you some. see it like half of my Twitter follows are behaving like Suzanne Stone kind of without the murder, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Now we have everyone on Twitter is like, fuck yeah, Amy Dunn. Right. You know, exactly. Like, exactly. Exactly. All the, all the amazing Amy memes. Yes, exactly. I, that is right. Suzanne Stone has gone from being like, cautionary tale of what could happen if the culture goes a certain way to like yes queen there what is that tweet about like (laughs) woman does um woman does completely psychotic and sociopathic thing and like her gays are like yes bitch work like that's (laughs) that's that's to die for right there um but in and of itself sounds pretty fucking fierce oh i I'm not even pretending to deny it. Yeah. To the point where here's here's like the level of reality that the movie presents. And I think Gus Van Sant is somewhat intentional for it. That it's like, she's kind of so fabulous that like, she can't really be like this, right? Like the movie is always presenting her at a certain degree more polished and, you know fabulous than she is in real life right like we never see the world's real suzanne stone well she can't always be that manicured right to be at this like shitty level but i think when you i think it's it's there when you see her through the perspective of like the wayne knight character who is sort of talking about her early days working at the station and how sort of ditzy and like sort of talking this big game but not really having any idea what she's talking about or that scene with her and George Siegel where he is playing this like horrible you know media creep and even within that context she's like super slow on the uptake to like realize like the point of this like filthy story he's telling her and the parts where we're we see her through the eyes of Matt Dillon's family where mm-hmm. she comes across as on the, anywhere on the spectrum from like callous to uh idiotic I don't know I think the movie pulls back the curtain on her periodically in a way that feels uh, valuable and intentional and yet it always st- like it does that but I do still feel like there is a certain lens towards this character where she's always the heightened version yeah. as the public would see her. Right. You know, right. as she is basically a celebrity figure. And maybe it's me just kind of relying too much on or not believing the like physical aspect of it, right? The way she's costumed, the way that her yeah. hair is styled the whole movie. I'm like, she just can't possibly be, you know, that you know, perfected at all times. So it's like, I think this movie, the movie and especially the performance does this balance of seeing this fantasy version of her, which is the public's view and everyone else's. But then you, Nicole Kidman has such a clear like voice in the performance that it's like, she see the real her, you see everyone else's and then you see what the public perception was 
all at the same time. It's a really layered as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really layered performance in that way. I think that's exactly right. Um, it was, I, you know, as we mentioned, justly sort of like hugely praised at the time. Um, I should mention now, we'll do this now. Uh, this is our sixth Nicole Kidman movie that we have covered on this at Oscar Buzz. When we do uh, the sixth movie of a particular actor or actress, we commemorate it. She's now in our Six Timers Club. And I give Chris a little quiz about the six movies that we have talked about in her career. So we're going to do that now. The six movies, I should remind people, uh, are all pretty, actually, we, they're pretty spread out. We had our little, like, Susan Sarandon thing recently where, like, we sort of backloaded our Susan Sarandon movies. And sometimes we cover movies sort of in bunches. But uh, our Kidman movies have pr- been pretty spread out over the course of our podcast. We have done The Paperboy, The Human Stain, which was part of our 2003 uh, miniseries, The Others, Far and Away, Boy Erased, and Now to Die For. So Chris... Can't believe it's taken her this long, to be honest. It's a slow and steady progression to the Six Timers Club for Nicole Kidman, but she's there. She's finally made it. She's finally attained the level that Dermot Mulroney has had for uh, (laughs) several months. So good for her. Good for her for finally making it to that mountaintop. All right. So Chris, are you ready for the Nicole Kidman Six Timers quiz? This is what my life has been leading to. (laughs) All right. We'll start with uh, some of the basics. So of those six movies, which film is the longest? Far and Away. Far and Away is far and away the longest. 140 minutes. Yes, exactly. 140 weeks long. (laughs) 140 um, uh, miles of, of land that they had to ride across. Okay. Which film is the shortest is it the others? It's the I feel like others. the others. Yeah. Not by it's much. A short movie. Not by much, but 104 minutes. It's, it's a few minutes uh, shorter. I was going to say like 100. Yeah. Yeah. 104. Which of those six films was the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? Paperboy. You would think, but no. Oh, uh, Human Stain. Human Stain, 42%. Yeah, I, I should have said that. Paperboy is not much higher, but yeah. Uh, which was the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? The others. No. But it's not to die much. for. To die for, eighty-eight uh, percent. With these '90s movies, the lower sample size kind of skews the numbers a little yeah, bit. But yeah, it was yeah, quite yeah. a quite a good, uh, quite a well-reviewed movie at the time. All right, which film made the most money worldwide? The others by a good margin, by a yeah. very very healthy margin, two hundred nine million dollars worldwide. Which made the least money worldwide? The Human Stain. No. The Paperboy. Paperboy. $3.78 little million dollars. Yes. Which film has a score by John Williams? To, uh, no, no, no. Not To Die For. No. To Die For has Danny Elfman. We'll get into it. To Die so For good. has a very Danny Elfman score. <laughs> it's so good, too. Um, uh, far and Away. Yes, Far and Away. Which film has a score by the director of the film? Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Uh. Huh. Yeah. Oh no, it's the others. It's the others. Alejandro Amenabar. Uh, Amenabar's score is so good it's in that very, movie. Very good. Yes. Which film came out during Leo season? <laughs> uh, the others. It's an August movie. August second. Yes. Which film was released in the United States on Halloween? 
<laughs> the human stain. The human stain. Halloween 2003. Spooky ukiyuki. Yep. I can't tell what your costume is. I'm a human stain. <laughs> okay, here's a mini Snickers. Um, which... <laughs> what are you, little gay boy? <laughs> I'm a human stain. I'm Nicole Kidman in The Human Stain. I'm deglammed for this role. <laughs> What's her character name in that movie? F- uh, f- uh, um, is it Fiona something? Um, shit. Yeah, Fiona Ham or something. <laughs> oh, you're like... thinking of Agnes Ham, I think. Um, Fauna. Fania Farley. <laughs> Fania Farley. Oh, yeah. Hello, little homosexual boy. What's your costume? Fanya Farley, you Philistine. I'm Fanya Farley from The Human Stain. I'm not as glamorous as I normally am. That's my costume. Um, alright. <laughs> Where are we? Which two of those six movies feature stars of the film Amistad? Um, two separate movies? Yes. Okay. Um, um, well, The Human Stain has Anthony Hopkins. Correct. And... Um, well, The Paperboy has Matthew McConaughey. Exactly. Very good. All right. Which two of these movies feature stars of the movie Signs? Um, well, To Die For has Joaquin Phoenix. Correct. And, um, uh, uh, uh. This next one is Why am I only thinking of Abigail Breslin? Abigail Breslin, uh, Mel Gibson, Cherry Jones... Uh, which one has? Oh, Boy Erased has Cherry. There, Jones. I was going to say you've got it. You just don't don't move past it. Yep, Cherry Jones. All right. Which were the only two films of these six to not play TIFF to not play Toronto? Uh, the others, obviously. Yes. And Far and Away. And Far and Away. Very good. Which two of these films played the Venice Film Festival? The others and the Human Stain. Yes, correct. <laughs> Very good. Sure, that went well for that movie. Yeah. The Others plays Venice after it's opened in the United States, and uh, The Human Stain premieres at Venice, which I'm sure was... <laughs> yeah. All right. Of which film... This is the last question. Of which film did Peter Travers write, This hot mess got booed by the snobs at Cannes, but there's no denying its profane energy. Oh, The Paperboy. The Paperboy. Exactly. Quite Very disappointed true. you didn't ask me... Um, which three movies does Nicole Kidman say if anyone's going to pee on him, it's going to be me? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, the answers are The Paperboy, The Human Stain, and Far and Away. Yeah. <laughs> God, shut the fuck up. I hate you. <laughs> All right. Speaking, though, of the Cannes Film Festival, I sort of ended on that so that we could segue. To Die For did premiere out of competition at the 1995 Cannes Film Festival. And it's an interesting... Call. It's put an, it in competition. It's... Well, we'll talk about the competition films in a second, and we'll talk about which... Uh, which films did well, but it's a very interesting Cannes Film Festival. All the films that filmed out of competition there to die for the usual suspects, which ended up, you know, becoming an Oscar success, the quick and the dead, Sam Raimi's the quick and the dead with Sharon Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio desperado, the Robert Rodriguez movie that kind of, uh, essentially introduces Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek to, uh, Salma Hayek. That was the most Buffalo accent I've ever done on this podcast in my entire life. Salma Hayek. Um, and then 
Kiss of Death, the Barbette Schroeder Kiss of Death with Nicolas Cage, that uh, the essentially the movie that David Caruso quit NYPD Blue to go make, that was a, a critically lambasted bomb of a movie. That's an interesting, uh, whatever, five movies. If we can pivot to can out-of-competition premieres for a second, if I can just ask an existential question. I know that our listeners are asking this question as well. What? Because of this last year's Cannes Film Festival, the out-of-competition movie I want to talk about, where the fuck is the Eileen Dew movie? Where did it go? It... It, is Chris, it real? Is it not real? Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I, I've never heard of this movie. I think, the Eileen Dew? I think you made it up. I mean, it would be a fever dream of, dream of mine. I think, I no, think it but... only exists in your mind. No, I know, I know. I've been waiting for it, too. The fake Celine Dion movie. Um, Why wasn't it a tiff? I think the Canadians are probably very against this <laughs> they're movie. They're ashamed yes, of they it. probably should be. They're ashamed but of it. No, I want I, it. I just wanted to bring that back up. Maybe some investigative reporting. Back when we were still thinking that TIFF was going to be everybody back there in person as normal, we all had visions of us uh, howling at the Aileen Dew premiere together. (laughs) As a Midnight Madness selection. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 1995 Cannes Film Festival. I'm looking at the sort of the prizes. Palm Door was a movie called Underground by um mm-hmm. Serbian filmmaker that filmmaker's second palm I believe Really Amir uh Costa Rica Interesting Maybe I'm wrong Anyway that is uh, a is movie I have not seen nor I don't think it's really very available people in talk the about Yeah uh, but you look at this the This is also films. the can where uh, Terrence Davies' Neon Bible premiered and, uh. like, cratered. And hey, it deserves more credit than that. We are a Davies Babies podcast, so I have to bring that up. Um, kind of a fascinating uh, can Film Festival competition lineup, though, in general. This includes Ed Wood by uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, City of Lost Children, uh, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, uh, John Borman's Beyond Rangoon, which I always bring up in terms of uh, when I try and do a Patricia Arquette movie that uh, people haven't heard, or a Francis McDormand movie. If we're doing like a, a that filmographies game with uh, uh, trying to come up with every single movie, <laughs> I always have Beyond Rangoon in my pocket for for Francis McDormand. Um, but Kids, Larry Clark's Kids, was at Cannes this year, oh which obviously was a hugely controversial and uh, and you know headline making kind of movie. James Ivory's Jefferson in Paris. You mentioned the Neon Bible, the Madness of King George, which would end up being uh, an Oscar nominee. Uh, although this would have been the the next year, the year after it uh, it had Oscar nominations. Same with Ed Wood. Madness actually. of King George, which like. Um... Madness of King George is very strange in the calendar of its release pattern and its can premiere because I think between BAFTA and Oscar, it straddles two different seasons. Yeah. Because, like, Nicole Kidman is nominated for Best Actress at BAFTA with Helen Helen Mirren, Mirren, who would be nominated in supporting at the Oscars, but I think not until a year later, or maybe it was the year before. Interesting. I forget. It's odd that Ed Wood is playing the, the the can after the Oscars also. Like, that seems to me even stranger, because that was... Can used to 
do that. Yeah. Like, even in, like, especially the further back you go, things would have been more released in, at least, I think they can only be released in the country of its production because you still have, like, Almodovar movies will open in Spain, play nowhere else for months, and then yeah. uh, be in the Cannes competition, like Pain yeah. and Glory had. Also, a couple movies that are in the uh, in certain regard uh, lineup that I that sort of jumped out to me, which was uh, Michael Moore's Canadian Bacon, which was his uh, his narrative film, his non documentary with uh, John Candy that imagines a uh, border war between Canada and the United States, and also uh, Diane Keaton's Unstrung Heroes, which is not a movie that I've seen, but I remember. Uh, hearing about quite a bit at the time. And I remember I was young enough that like the idea that Diane Keaton, who I only knew as an actress was also directing a movie was like fascinating to me, but I never saw it. So yeah, movies that only exist as a title, things to do in Denver when you're dead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, To die for though, uh, is an interesting, is sort of a highlight of that Cannes Film Festival, I would imagine. If I had been at that festival, I think To Die For is one of those movies I would probably brag the most about, about seeing it early. And Van Sant is obviously fits into that kind of milieu at this point, because the films that he had made up until this point in his career were very, very uh, arty and respected, obviously, Drugstore Cowboy and My Own Private Idaho. And then he makes... Um, even cowgirls get the blues, which is a huge disaster, absolute disaster. disaster. Like critics hate it, nobody sees it. Um, it world premiered at TIFF, I believe, and like had a fall release planned and everything, and it got pulled and entirely like re-edited and such, and it's still a disaster. Um, which I I'm glad you brought this up because I kind of. To Die For confuses me why, like, Buck Henry's screenplay didn't show up anywhere, yeah. why Gus Van Sant didn't get mentions as a director. And I kind of wonder if the stain of uh, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues was still it's very uh, possible. alive. Um, it's, it's also interesting that that failure, which is such a huge failure the next thing he makes is a studio movie because you think yes. like you watch that movie and it really does feel like a career ender. Yeah. I've um, never seen it. It's that bad. You really shouldn't yeah. because it's not even a fun disaster. It's, it's Uma Thurman. Lay out the plot of that movie just very briefly. I mean, how do you do that? Um, Uma Thurman has a giant based... thumb. That's all I know about that movie. Yes. <laughs> and like, there's a lot of famous people in that movie giving like cameo performances. It's a very famous novel among like, uh, I think the Kerouac era, and it's very bizarre. And it's like, it was one of the unadaptable novels, right? Oh, and I see. The movie definitely proves it to be true because it's all <laughs> these just kind of bizarre episodes for this character. I couldn't even like describe the plot to you. But yes, Uma Thurman has a giant thumb. That's basically all you need to know. <laughs> Uma Thurman, giant thumb. Yeah. So after that movie, all his next several film credits, even the even given the success of the critical success of To Die For, and then the commercial and critical success of Good Will Hunting two years later, mm-hmm. he doesn't go back to making movies that he has also written until 
the uh, Jerry Elephant Last Days mm-hmm. Paranoid Park sort of era of the mid aughts. Um, it takes it goes through to die for Goodwill Hunting, his remake of Psycho, which I mean the fact Another that career ender. the fact that he's not a writer on that is sort of a little bit misleading because that was definitely like that was an auteur project of his for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then so it's not. I like, mean, like there's a lot of opinions about that movie, but like. And it's also not his last career ender movie, and he's still trucking because, like, Sea of Trees is still coming. Right, right. That's the thing. His career is really fascinating. This is why whenever um, Blank Check puts him on a bracket, I vote hard for him, because, like, it's a really, really fascinating career to sort of traverse. A lot of different eras and different types of movies. But I think one of the things that I find most fascinating is through this era where he's directing movies that he hasn't written. The only one that really feels like, well, we talked about Finding Forrester and yet I, the, my memory of the production history of that movie is a little bit fuzzy, but like Good Will Hunting is really the only one that feels like a work for hire in that, like that project Mm -hmm. was ready to go. And I mean, he basically was. Uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck kind of recruited him for that movie. Right. And he helped give them whatever clout that they needed to stick to their guns with the Harvey Weinstein sort of Miramax machine bearing mm-hmm. down on them. But like to die for. Probably to me, at least, the reason why that movie is so good, because I think y- you have that movie in another director's hands and it's possibly insufferable. Um, it's in, it's interesting the fact that uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon ended up being involved in Project Greenlight in a lot of its different iterations and a lot of Project Greenlight is this idea of like especially the later seasons of like how does a f- does a movie script fare in you know one director's hands versus another and I think it's always a little ironic because Goodwill Hunting is always that movie to me where I think of like what does Goodwill Hunting look like if it's a different director than Gus Van Sant? And I think there are versions of it that are not necessarily even like better or worse, but just like there's a lot of different ways that that movie can get made. Um, but I was watching a, a video of Charlie Rose interview. It's amazing how many how often Charlie Rose comes up when I'm researching for these uh, this had Oscar buzz movies um, that Van Sant did and. The way he speaks of the movie and he talks about how it got made, he was involved in the in the production of this movie from the very early stage. And just because it's not his screenplay, it still feels like he has great sort of authorship is, you know, this is definitely a Buck, Buck Henry screenplay. And they worked together on mm-hmm. this very much. They're a really inspired pair. I wish they'd made more movies together. It's a really well-written movie. And Buck Henry, at this point, hadn't had a uh, official screenplay credit on a movie for like 11 years. His last um, mm-hmm. his last credited screenplay was this Goldie Hawn movie in 1984 called Protocol. Did you look that up at all when I put that in the, uh, in the I'm doc? I'm sure I know. Uh, Goldie Hawn's my mom's favorite actress. Oh, I'm no sure kidding. that I've seen this movie and it's probably bad. It's a Buck Henry um, co-wrote it with Nancy Myers and Charles Shire. And, okay. And it's directed by um, 
uh, Herbert Ross. And it's Goldie Hawn. The logline on IMDb just says, A woman, Goldie Hawn, saves the life of Emir of Otar and in Washington. And so, but the poster is Goldie Hawn in this sort of like summer camp athletic like outfit of just like white tank top white short shorts and she's got like a boom box and a baseball bat and a mitt and a basketball and so i'm not sure what and like this like pink visor so like i'm imagining the wardrobe story here for this woman and i'm having a little bit of trouble being like what is the vibe here but she is in front of like this kind of almost watermark of the Capitol building and then like a lineup of men in suits. And I genuinely have no idea what's going on, but I'm, and the tagline on the poster says there's something funny going on in Washington. Goldie's about to become a diplomat. I'm in. I'm I'm totally in. in. I'm all in. Also Buck Henry's next movie after to die for would be town and country. Yes. Talk about disasters. I mean, we're, we eventually have to do Town and Country, but like Town and Country, I feel like we could do fucking four hours on that. <laughs> but anyway, I'm putting the call out to our listeners. If you've seen Protocol, if you know about 1984's Protocol, rated PG, that's adorable. Um, I mean, like 1980s and 1970s no, PG. There could be like full front. I was going to say, you could probably have right. boobs in it and you're totally still getting PG. Um but yeah, uh, tweet at us at uh, at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz if you've seen Protocol and you want to talk to us about Protocol. I'm sure I we will have. Guarantee some you, or some of our listeners have seen. I Protocol. have faith. I have faith in them. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's an interesting point in Gus Van Sant's career, and it also is, and obviously the fact that like Goodwill Hunting comes two years later and sort of like jumps him up into sort of a different strata. Um. But this movie also puts him together with Joaquin Phoenix, which is Hmm. sort of metatextually interesting and poignant, obviously, because River Phoenix was the star of My Own Private Idaho, which was Van Sant's sort of previous to this movie, sort of his best known movie, sort of along with Drugstore Cowboy. But um, Mm -hmm. uh, River Phoenix had died two years before this movie is released. This is Joaquin's first film since Parenthood. So Parenthood was the last movie where he was credited as Leaf Phoenix. He plays Diane Weist's son in that movie. Um, this sort of like big ensemble. The interesting note of that is when they made Parenthood as a TV series, his role was played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, <laughs> so he sort of takes a break from acting after that sort of like goes travels to like mexico and latin america with his dad they're this very sort of like famously hippie family which you can tell by like the names the parents had been in a cult before he was born it was the whole thing um and so he steps away from acting uh goes to travel with his dad comes back to la is at the viper room and calls 911 the night that his brother overdoses and dies uh, in Los Angeles. It's a very heartbreaking. Terribly heartbreaking story. Um, And the fact that he would want to sort of continue on in this career, that his brother has such significant 
shoes to fill in that river phoenix was seen as like one of the great actors of his generation and this huge sense of hope and promise for what his career could have been and so this is joaquin's first film credit as joaquin phoenix and it's his first film in six years and he is and this is an actor who i have you know talked a lot about about how i am very rarely on the same page with him these days but I think he's phenomenally good in To Die For. The younger Joaquin stuff is all kind of of a very similar vibe. Like, this is, you know, you can see the natural progression in less than a decade to the Gladiator performance of this. Yeah, which I also love. Of his career. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I thought a lot about, in this rewatch, I thought a lot about that connection it, because I was also really struck by, like, uh, Gus Van Sant is a, an incredible director of young actors. Yes. And when I say young actors, I mean actors who are, like, 20 years old, yes. right? Yes, I mean, like, uh, a huge part of River Phoenix's legacy is my own private Idaho. And that's River Phoenix's best performance that we still have yeah. um, to go back to. And it's uh, Running on Empty was his yes. Oscar nomination? Yes. Um, should have been nominated for my own private Idaho. Um, yeah, I need I to agree. see running on empty. But I was also struck by like when we talk about this movie, we talk a lot about the Suzanne Stone stuff, right? And partly that's because of Nicole Kidman's uh, performance. But uh, you spend a lot of time with the teens in this movie. Yeah. Um, more than I remember, and I think more than we discuss, and a lot of that stuff is so good um because it's also uh casey athlete and allison foland um, she's wonderful i try i was trying she's to, so good i was trying to think of what if anything else i would remember her from because she's not somebody who like went on to this great career obviously as the same as as the other two uh did uh, joaquin and casey and she's really really good in this movie and really um empathetic you really feel for her because she's sort of more so than the other two boys she's like a real lost soul in this and Mm -hmm. and the fact that suzanne sees in her and ultimately weaponizes against her this sort of like nascent queer crush that she has on suzanne is so vicious when she that that moment where she sort of talks about like people of your persuasion or whatever um it's it's harsh it's really harsh Mm -hmm. because you feel for this girl who like ultimately really thought she had this like friend in in uh and it's and it's you feel for her in a different way than you feel for joaquin's character who like is a dumb fucking teen who thinks he's in love with this woman and the easiest one to manipulate of this trio yes yes for sure and like casey affleck plays the sort of like the harder one the more dangerous one the one who like probably would have killed matt dylan anyway without even right the loosest canon right exactly exactly classic loose canon behavior um but lydia is the one you sort of feel sad for and she's ultimately the one who she wears the wire and in in a more just world would have been the one to take Suzanne down but Suzanne gets uh, let out on a technicality also that scene where they walk her out past the media after she gets uh the case gets thrown out or whatever 
um, where she's imagining the media as like an applauding audience. And Mm -hmm. that smile that she sort of like breaks out into, which is terrifying as a, as a, as a sort of like, if you're watching that footage on the news and you see this woman who has like been credibly accused of murdering her husband, smiling to the cameras that way, I imagine that uh, would have been quite in the sort of like in the, post Casey Anthony world of uh, of media like Nancy Grace at the time would have had a fucking field day with Suzanne Stone <laughs> um but obviously that's the that's the kind of stuff that this movie sort of predicts is Nancy Grace culture right headline news mm-hmm. and the Amanda Knox culture and um god let's get Amanda Knox watching to die for and have her write 12 different op-eds about it um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, talk to me a little bit more about the about the supporting cast. We got to get into Ileana Douglas. She fucking rules. I mean, the supporting cast is nothing but a bunch of freaking heavy hitters. Yeah, Holland Taylor. Miss Holland Taylor you mentioned honey. Wayne Knight. Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya. I I gotta say, love that actor. We need to just, like, score through his filmography just so we can get him in the Six Timers Club, an actor who never got his due in the way that he deserves. The thing, about, the thing about Dan Hedaya is just as an accident of, like, when I was born, you, it's funny to think about sort of the actors who sort of loom large in your childhood quite accidentally i feel like wallace sean is sort of that way for a whole generation of people who have Mm -hmm. this like odd attachment to this short little character actor purely because they grew up on the princess bride and like a certain generation of comedies right 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 exactly and so for me growing up and like the adams family and clueless were in my sort of very early tween slash teen years I ended up being like, oh yeah, Dan Hedaya is like one of the most easily recognizable actors to me now for the rest of my life. And it's because he plays the shifty lawyer in the Adams family and uh, Cher's father, Cher the character, obviously, in uh, in Clueless. Bette Midler's husband in First Wives And Bette Midler's husband in First Wives Club. Right, exactly. He's in, Also, like... I want to point out, yeah. we all have like, uh, it started with Adams Family Values because of Joan Cusack in that movie, I think. And like, that's a very like queer inflected movie. Yes. So like gay people have been on Adams Family Values for a while. But I feel like it's starting to bleed into the original Adams Family movie as well. And like, we haven't talked about him in that movie. He's a villain of the movie. Yeah. Or one of the villains. One of the villains. He is really funny in that movie. Everybody's really funny in that. But yes, he particularly is The Adams Family movies are great. Um, yeah, we probably couldn't talk about many of his movies because, like, you know, it's just, like, it's a lot of goofy comedies and right. stuff like that. And stuff that, like, did get Oscar nominations, like Nixon, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like The Usual Suspects we were just talking about. He plays Ches Palminteri's sort of co-worker who, like, just pops into the room and says, like, one or two lines about, like, you know, commenting on uh, the case as it goes. Um, I will also say he is not at all the thing that we talk about when we talk about this movie, but I think he's the greatest screen Nixon we have ever had. I mean, that is a debate worth having. The fact that he's in that movie and actual Nixon is really funny. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. 
Um, the thing about Adam's family, which is so off the path of our conversation, but I just want to mention, because obviously Adam's family values has, is become one of those, like the sequel is more remembered than the original. And it's sort of in that same conversation as sister. They're both great. Sister act. Well, but this is the thing. So I feel like everybody who says that sister act two is the best sister act is on drugs, but, um, and more, and the more actual reason for that is, um, they're younger than me, and how dare they? Uh, but both sister acts are great. Sister act one is the is the superior sister act. But Adam's family values is sort of rightly seen as the superior Adam's family because I do think it is the more ambitious of the two of them. And yes. Joan Cusack does take it to the next level. But like that does not mean that you should sleep on the first Adam's family, which is a really really good and creative and wonderful movie. And if it's on television, you should give it uh, your attention. Is what I will say. All I'm saying is which Adams Family movie has an MC Hammer song? The original. Watch the original too. <laughs> which Adams Family movie has a character who is uh, a grifter woman who is portraying a sort of Polish child psychologist uh, out to steal the money of this uh, this gothic millionaire family? It is. It's a great. Just a great uh, Dr. Pinderschloss. Dr. Pinderschloss. I love her so much. Caroline Wilson. Caroline Wilson? What movie Elizabeth did we Wilson. have with her that we talked about that I was like, yes, Dr. Oh, Pinderschloss? Hold on. I've got to look it up because, yes, it was. She was. We've definitely talked about this. This might be way we back in our did. Episode. What was it? Give me half a second. Hyde Park on Hudson. She's in Hyde Park on Hudson. That's right. <laughs> the only living legacy of our Hyde Park on Hudson episode. It's true. All right. So, but back to Dan Hedaya in To Die For, where he is playing a uh, permanent glower of a human. Just the scenes of him. He's so good at it. The scenes of the talk show, the sort of like after the fact sort of talk show, when Kurt Woodsmith is playing Nicole Kidman's father, and he's talking about how when... Uh, Suzanne and Jimmy, or not Jimmy, uh, Larry first got together and uh, how he sort of tried to warn her away from him because he didn't, he wasn't educated and he's sort of a mook and like, what do you, like he's, his family might be in the mob. And then he looks over at Dan Hedaya and he's like, no offense. And Hedaya is just like, no, 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 I get it. And by the end of the movie, that sort of takes on another different color because like they're all on this talk show after the fact. Um, when you know that Dan Hedaya has had her killed via his mafia contacts. Um, <laughs> but there is even that moment in when Kurtwood Smith makes that statement earlier in the movie where Dan Hedaya sort of looks at him and is like, no, 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 like, and sort of like glowers at him. But then they flash to that, the lake, the frozen lake, uh, which is very sort of like effectively ominous kind of flash forward. But like the movie is very, very aware of the fact that it is telling you this story in retrospect. So the movie is always very aware of how much more about the story it knows than you. And I think is very effective mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but talk, talk, talk about Ileana Douglas. We have to, cause she's so good. I mean, she doesn't have that much screen time. No. I feel it like we kind of latch on to her as like the like person who is cutting through the most of the bullshit of the story, yes. even though she doesn't spare in giving her own perspective and opinion, but it, it, she, there's something about Ileana Douglas as just a very comfortable, natural performer. Yes. That her effect on this movie is like she feels like the guiding light of truth, right? 
Yes. And it, it there's something about that in like her performance that builds the momentum of that final shot that feels so satisfying, partly because it's her and um right, you know, the performance that she's given. She what was she the runner up for for this for supporting actress and it's such an inspired choice was it national society of film national critics society of film critics yes yes very inspired choice incredibly inspired choice she's her her the bulk of her stuff in this in the film her talking head stuff is filmed at an ice rink she is uh, she's an ice skater by uh if not by career then by hobby and um she's sort of giving her recollections of this sort of in the middle of her ice skating practice or whatever. And the very first thing you see her say is, oh, how would I describe Suzanne? She goes, uh, four letters and it begins with a C. And, and then they cut back to her like half a minute later and she goes cold. I meant cold, C-O-L-D. Um, but it's like, that's all you need to know about this woman. Like right off the bat is just, um, and and the fact that she's sort of like she's the one who feels like she's the most savvy to the media um circus of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like she's not There's something about how she's interviewed at an ice skating rink. And doesn't she even skate up to the camera I the first she time does. you see her? I think she does. Where it's like they probably had to badger her to get her on camera and then they just like yes. find her at an ice skating rink. She's not sitting down to talk to them. She's a little bit hostile to the whole process of it, which is mm-hmm. uh feels very good and and right and correct. Um her career at this point is really interesting. She had come up in very very small roles in early in uh, in Scorsese movies. She's in the last last temptation of Christ as like an extra um she's in New York stories and Goodfellas and these small roles. And then in Cape Fear, she gets her sort of biggest role to date an incredibly memorable and horrifying scene where she gets uh, brutal assaulted by Robert De Niro and he like bites her cheek off and it is terrifying. Um, and then she moves into this sort of era in the 1990s where she's kind of a little bit of an indie queen, even though she doesn't really uh, grace of my heart is really the only movie where she's a lead and but i i was i remember talking about my little uh, moment binging all those old independent spirit award ceremonies and how at the time at that time in the 90s the indie film community felt very much like its own sort of discrete community to itself if you told me she'd hosted an indie spirit awards i would believe i think she did um and now i want to like double check that and make sure but um i mean if she didn't missed opportunity there no i actually but she feels like a missed opportunity actress in the beginning like we never really got to capitalize on the iliana douglas like vibe in a way or like we never appreciated her enough to, like yes here talk about oh you know what's interesting is that also like buck henry hosted like six independent spirit awards in a row like the very very early ones um i don't think she ever hosted but she was like a she was a presence she was there every year sort of presenting some award or another and i think it was just like she had that 
gravitas to her and Mm -hmm. maybe it was coming up she's fucking cool that's the thing is she's super cool she came up through the scorsese movies and i wonder if she was sort of one of those like you know quote-unquote like difficult women or whatever back at that time she sort of has that vibe to her right where she wouldn't really hold back uh her opinions on stuff like that so i would also say two things about her that you know because we don't know because like we don't know enough about her if she has bad political opinions don't tell me right exactly (laughs) and two if she is a secret scientologist don't tell me right i guess she was romantically involved with scorsese that was the deal oh yeah they dated for like a decade i did not realize that part i just figured she was in a bunch of those movies i had no idea oh i didn't know you didn't know that. yeah look at me learning things on the job Love learning. Yeah. She's, she is, um, the tonal, uh, contrast to this movie that it like really, really necessarily needs. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and she's really good. Yeah. But like, yeah, everybody in this movie has like a great couple of scenes, right? Uh, Wayne Knight has, is like actually really, really great in his couple of scenes. Um, George Siegel is such a fucking creep. In his stuff. We haven't really talked about Matt Dillon at all. He kind of fades in this movie. It's interesting because it's... He apparently auditioned to play one of the teens, which... Oh, Matt. Oh, hon. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. Um, Those days are behind you. It's interesting because that is also a reunion for Gus Van Sant because of Drugstore Cowboy. Of course, Cowboy, yes. But, like, it's kind of a nothing role i feel like he maybe has as much screen time and i through no fault of his dialogue as iliana douglas does yeah through no fault of his own like larry is very much an object in this movie as as designed fully intentionally he should be um and he plays that role well he's sort of he you get the type of guy he is right where he's um sort of decidedly unimpressive you get where he's handsome but then you also get where he is very uh, sort of dull and very typical and very much just like dime a dozen kind of a guy, no ambition, um, wants to very much just wants, you know, Suzanne to have a baby and they like settle down into this very sort of like typical family life. So you can see where everything about him once they're actually married kind of horrifies her in her sort of worldview of where she wants to be in her life and her career. Mm-hmm. And he does that well. He plays into that well. But I think by design, that is not the part of this movie you're meant to remember. Right. Absolutely. But he had some more interesting things, obviously, ahead of him. He, you know, his late 90s is actually really interesting, but there's something about Mary and Wild Things are uh you know so there are more interesting roles ahead for him and we won't talk about his lone oscar nomination because we don't need to do that it's bad oscar it's a bad oscar nomination even within that movie it's a bad oscar nomination even within that movie there are way better options Mm -hmm. right in that category even yeah (sighs) fucking crash anyway moving right along can we talk about this best actress race oh yeah one of my favorite topics to talk about is that best actress race (laughs) Well, okay, so what I think is interesting, because it is really surprising, you would think it's surprising, right, that she wouldn't be nominated, because I I think just the reputation of the performance since, and, like, 
this back best actress lineup in particular i think the thing even though this is a studio movie yes. i think in tone and you know the type of quality that her performance is giving yeah you're competing for the like critical consensus uh you know the uh, kind of we didn't expect this from you sure, type sure. of nomination, right? And I think there is a lot of competition for that this year, and which is why it makes it fully unsurprising that the winner is the one who's had the building Oscar momentum, you know, momentum, right? In an actual independent movie, too. Right. So it's like you have other independent competition because the other big snub for Best Actress is Jennifer Jason Lee for Georgia. Right who we've talked about. She wins New York Critics. The New York Critics uh, lineup, which, like, had... It says Nicole Kidman was in fourth place with uh, Elizabeth Shue and Julianne Moore for Safe, who would be my winner this year. I was going to say, you could... This is one of these years where you could create an incredibly respectable and good five women lineup of just people who weren't nominated. You could do Jennifer Jason Leigh, Julianne Moore, Nicole Kidman, Annette Bening, Annette Bening for uh, The American President, and Tony Collette for Muriel's Wedding. And that is like... I will also throw out Sandra Bullock for While You Were Sleeping. It's a, it's a bulletproof... In my opinion, her best performance. Right. It's a bulletproof lineup of, of women. And that is taking nothing away from the five women who were nominated who are also really great. So it's the actual Oscar lineup. Susan Sarandon finally wins her Oscar for Dead Man Walking. Uh, Elizabeth Shue gets career best notices. Like, where did she like comeback story stuff for leaving Las Vegas? She was, I would say, probably second place. Although you could debate who finished second, but this is, would be one of those years where I would love to see the vote totals. Um, Meryl for Bridges of Madison County, which when we talked about when we did the River Wild episode, breaking her career long streak of five years without being an Oscar nominee. Uh, her, we'll see what happens this year. Her time in the desert was uh, was finally ended. Emma Thompson for, with what I have called uh, Meryl's best performance in Bridges of Madison County. Yeah, she's quite quite good. Yes. Emma Thompson is nominated for Sense and Sensibility, a movie that. Um, she got a lot of the credit for, and rightly so, because she also wrote that screenplay adaptation. She mm-hmm. wins the Oscar for screenplay, um, but she's also nominated an actress. And then the fifth nominee was the surprise Golden Globe winner in drama, Sharon Stone, in Casino. So here is my sort of provocative question for you. Is if Sharon Stone doesn't win the Globe for Casino, if Sarandon wins it or... Elizabeth Shue or Meryl Streep or somebody. Um, does Kidman's Golden Globe momentum maybe count for more? And does she have a better shot of making the lineup then? Or was it just not going to happen? The thing about Casino is it is only nominated right. for Sharon Stone. Right. Which still shocks me. But like, it's taken Casino a long time to shake off the like, Goodfellas vibe light. that it's like, the what? The Goodfellas light vibe? Exactly. Or Goodfellas long? And it's like <laughs> very, well, it's not that much longer than yeah. Goodfellas. Um, it, they're, they're very, very different movies, but it's just like it's De Niro and Pesci doing mob stuff. Yeah. But like, Casino yeah. you know, is almost borderline a comedy. Um, I, but Sharon Stone is also the actress this year. And I'm sure she pulled 
votes for uh, Basic Instinct for a potential Oscar nomination. Yeah. I mean, when she got that Golden Globe, people literally laughed when they announced her name yeah. during the ceremony. Um, Sharon Stone is the one who's probably getting the we didn't know you had this in you mm-hmm. credit mm-hmm. away from Nicole Kidman. So I don't know if that's the case. If like to die for had like a screenplay nomination. But this is sort I of what I'm saying though is the Sharon Stone we didn't know you had it in you thing maybe doesn't get as much momentum if you don't have that moment of her winning at the Globes and giving that speech that sort of well it's a miracle speech. And being so endearing, maybe she's not as much in the front of people's minds because Casino was a movie they had sort of uh, pushed to the side. And maybe Kidman is stands out more as, oh, wow, Nicole Kidman won a Golden Globe. Maybe we should consider her. I don't know. I I think it's possible. I mean, like Nicole Kidman wins the first ever Critics' Choice for Best Actress this year. But like how much sway did that have at the time? And the Critics' Choice back then was a very different animal than what it was now. That one, it it functioned much, much more like a typical Critics' Prize back then. A Mm -hmm. typical like LA Film Critics, New York Film Critics type of thing back then. Yeah, like at this point, like uh, a... Obviously, it's the first year for Critics' Choice, but like New York and LA critics would have had more pull. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, ninety-five Best Actress is a is a bounty of of riches, and that is a like I said, that's a list that goes about twelve deep in terms of great, great lead actress performances, and all actual leads. It's not like any of them you could be like, oh, they could have bumped that person into supporting, and it would have been fine. Like, even mm-hmm. Sharon Stone in Casino is probably the closest one to that, where you could go, like, is she, like, could she have been pushed to supporting? Today, they would have absolutely pushed Sharon Stone to supporting. I think that's right. I think that's right. But um, but everybody else is, like, the, like, stone-cold either lead or co-lead of their movie. And The thing about year. Sharon Stone, if they pushed her to supporting, I would actually see that as a winning performance, because that's not the strongest supporting actress lineup. Right, that's Mira Sorvino winning for Mighty Aphrodite. Um, Kathleen Quinlan is a nominee. Which she that kind year. of steamrolled, but like she did. But I think it was because, I, well, Kate Winslet won something, right? Didn't Kate Winslet win SAG? That hold on, I have BAFTA. Pull. She did win BAFTA. Okay, I mean Kate Winslet because Emma also won BAFTA, right? I can imagine Sense and Sensibility was uh, hugely. Uh. I just closed it out. Sorry. No problem. I don't think she did. Let me go back. Kate did win SAG for Sense and Sensibility. That was the only really major uh, thing in the States that that Mira did not win. Sorry, my computer is being... Yeah, Emma Thompson won BAFTA. That was, again, you mentioned because, like, Helen Mirren is nominated from the year before. Uh, There's no Sarandon, no Street, but it's Emma Thompson beating out Nicole Kidman... Helen Mirren, and then Elizabeth Shue. So, good for her. <laughs> um, but yeah, that supporting actress lineup, it's Kathleen Quinlan for Apollo 13, it's Mayor Winningham for Georgia, Kate Winslet uh, for Sense and Sensibility, and who's the one I'm forgetting in 95? Ooh. I like to play this game for myself. This is the thing, you know, do you ever have like a go-to thing to like occupy your mind when you're like in a situation where you're just like, I I have nothing to do, you're like in a hospital waiting room or like a, uh, 
uh, or rather at the doctor's office or something like that. And you're just like, I want something to like pass the time in my head. And mine is like, can I remember supporting actress lineups going back? Because I am what? I'm going to adopt this now. Now that I like have this type of thing. My mind is usually running too much on like my emotional state. You know, I, I occupy a lot of time dealing with that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll think of it in a second, but, uh, yeah. What else do we want to, what are other odds and ends about to die for a movie? I quite, quite, quite enjoy. Uh, I mean, like this is one of the better movies we've done in a while. And I don't think we've done, uh, some bad movies lately. Oh, it's definitely one of the better ones we've done in a while. And it's probably, I mean, it's top tier, top tier movie. So Talk to your episode when we uh, have to do another recap uh, for our, our ballot when we hit that uh, I know. 200, baby. I got to do better uh, about keeping notes for that as we go because... Joe, I um, if our listeners are not screaming, I have the list pulled up. You should be ashamed of yourself. Probably this... Well, no, she probably wasn't second place. Kate Winslow was probably second place. Yeah. Uh, you have forgotten Joan Allen for I time. just pulled it up myself. I'm so mad at myself. My queen! My queen Joan Allen for Nixon. She's so good in that movie. Um, she has the best scene in that movie. The, uh, you want them to love you and they never will. Um, all right, so let's see. I'm going through my little notes here. Oh, I need to shout out for uh, Real Housewives fans that you do get a shot of Eileen Davidson in this movie because there is a moment where Days of Our Lives is on television and it is a scene from the mid-90s with John Black and Kristen uh, Demera and Eileen is, you know, right there. And which is weirdly an interesting kind of cross, uh, unintentional uh, cross commentary where it's like, oh, a future Real Housewife, a... Uh, a descendant <laughs> of the media uh, complex that has descended upon this country uh, shows up into Die For. So that makes it sort of um, extra interesting. Meg Ryan was initially offered the role of Suzanne Stone in this movie. And for as she indeed was, she would have ruled in this movie. Like I would not trade Nicole Kidman's performance for anything, but like this would have been a real Meg game. Ryan would have been nominated. Meg Ryan. This would have been Meg Ryan's first nomination. I think I agree with you, especially coming off of when a man loves a woman. At the at the time, uh, the timing of it, absolutely, because like Nicole Kidman wasn't taken seriously enough, and you could argue that uh, Meg Ryan wasn't either. But I think you're very right to say the "When a Man Loves a Woman" of it all. Yeah, the the, the "When a Man Loves a Woman" of it all would have really made a difference. Wow, that's an interesting sort of uh, uh, cross universe. What happens in that universe where Meg Ryan takes the role in that in To Die For? Because you can conceive the Meg Ryan version of this performance, Absolutely. right? And she would have been amazing. She would have too. ruled. She would have really and would have been able to play into her sort of America's sweetheart personality in really kind of insidious ways, I feel like. I think that would have been mm-hmm. um something to call I watched a little bit of the um the variety actors on actors from twenty sixteen where Nicole and Casey Affleck were on and so they talked about to die for a good bit and because it was casey's first role and they talked about making it together and she said that she basically um she had to really advocate for herself to gus van zandt and then once she convinced him that he really went to bat for her with the studio because the studio really did not want to hire her and um which is one of those things that like I feel like everybody sort of like has that version of that story for like their biggest roles, which is like, they didn't want to hire mm-hmm. me. And I always wonder how much of that 
is real and how much of that is I haven't heard back from the studio in a few weeks. They must not want to hire me. Like that kind of a thing. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> that you know, the self-doubt sort of creeping into your you head. You could certainly believe it for this, though, because of the, like, reviews of it. Like, the type oh, yeah. of thing that, like, she could, she probably got Dr. Chase Meridian way easier than she did for this role. Absolutely. She said, which is, like, a bigger movie. Yeah. Smaller part, but, like, reviews for her career probably don't matter what mattered is like yeah. how she can sell the character on a poster right exactly and the poster is all her too it's very sort of like sexified and whatever um in a way that kind of makes it look almost like a uh sex thriller instead of a, a sort of sharp uh, media satire but um sh- she talked with casey about how making the movie felt very much like going back to her days making movies in Australia after this time of making these big budget movies. I have a feeling she must have shot this after Batman Forever, considering how long Batman Forever must have needed uh, post-production for. And because she talked about how making this movie had been kind of a reprieve after making these sort of very Hollywoody kind of movies. And you get the mm-hmm. sense, she, she mentioned Days of Thunder specifically, but you get the sense she was also talking about um, uh, Batman Forever and maybe even stuff like, you know, Malice in My Life and stuff like that. But... Um, I mean, far and away. Too. She really sort of raved about about working with Gus Van Sant, which is interesting because she doesn't work with... She doesn't work again with Gus Van Sant or with Joaquin Phoenix. And I think that's interesting. And she talks very highly about both of them. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, there's no, doesn't seem to be really any intentionality in the fact that she never worked with either one of them again. But it makes me. Yeah, I mean, considered Gus Van Sant's movies after this, like what she could she have possibly been in? She, sea of Trees. She, she plays a tree in Sea of Trees. She's one of the trees. Um, Nicole Kidman is Paranoid Park. Paranoid Park is the name of her character in that film. Um <laughs> But no, but I just mean like it would be interesting to see her reteam with either one of those people. I think it would be What if the lake <laughs> fuck off was Nicole Kidman playing the lake directed by Gus Van Sant. Nicole Kidman could have been Jerry. Right? Nicole Kidman is Jerry. A third Jerry. I'm into Is it Jerry or is it Gary? No, it's Jerry. I feel like I thought someone called it Gary at one point, and I was like, I don't know. Have you seen reality. it? Hell no. Okay, I've seen it. It's definitely Jerry. I, I know that it's great, so there's probably they're both named Jerry. Spot, but like, yes. I, I don't need try it. selling don't the movie know. Jerry in 2021 to your list of Twitter followers. Hey, come watch this movie that is only Matt Damon and Casey Affleck in the desert talking to each other. It's and also <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Like, oh my god. Yeah. Times have changed. Anyway, uh, do we want to jump into the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, every episode we end with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we'll get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Woohoo! Love a free-for-all of hints. What if the lake... Oh my god, fuck off. Was a free for all of his, <laughs> and the movie is about Vanessa Redgrave. Oh my god! Jumping into the lake for a swim and going, "Oh my god, look at all these hints! 
Look at this. Look at this polluted lake. It's going to take me a month to get all of these hints out of this lake. What if it was a month by the lock and it was Loch Ness and it was Vanessa Redgrave trying to solve the mystery of the Loch Ness monster? And it takes her a month to do it. And it takes her a whole month to do it, but she does it. By the end, she figures it out and she becomes its best friend. That's a month by the lake. That's the water horse. Please tweet at us if you've seen a month by the the water horse. (laughs) What did you say? What if what if the water horse is a month by the lake? Oh no! What if a month by the lake is a secret war horse sequel, prequel, sequel, sequel? Tweet at us if you've seen a month by the lake. Also, we want to know about it, but don't like oh, fake answers only. Nothing real. Yes. Okay. Would you like to give or guess first in our IMDb game that is not about the month, not about a month at the lake, as far I- as I know? <laughs> I will go ahead and I will give first. How about All right, that? hit me. This is a performer who, shockingly, we have not done on the IMDb game, though we've done episodes on this person. Uh, One of the last actors that you mentioned, actually, who was originally offered the role of Suzanne Stone, I think also, interestingly, replaced Nicole Kidman in the movie In the Cut. I am talking about the great Meg Ryan. It is interesting the way their careers intertwine in that way. In these two movies, Yeah. yeah. We've never done Meg Ryan, huh? Nope. All right. Well, when Harry met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle, both of them definitely. Correct and correct. All right. So where do we go from here? Is it also You Got Mail? You've got, yes, you've got mail. Yes, correct. You, you Got Mail. That's Dan Hedaya. That's the Dan <laughs> Hedaya remake. You Got Mail. You got mail. Uh, I can't do a good Dan no. Hedaya, but he'd be like, I don't know. The computer told me I got mail. <laughs> What's this mail? I don't I don't have a letter. Uh, work on it. Work on your Dan Hedaya. All right, so one yeah, more. That's not, it's not a good Dan Hedaya, but you, you get it. I do. You get it. I do get it. All right. You get you get a movie that is about Dan Hedaya figuring out email for the first time. <laughs> what like spam emails would Dan Hedaya get? Oh, a lot of uh, laser hair removal. No, he would never. He clearly never did. Um, he he had, no. He had a moment where he curiously like Googled it for a second, and then uh, and then decided against it. But now he gets all spam he's about mad it. Mad because he supported like one change.org position. <laughs> he's getting a ton of petitions. Nancy Pelosi is emailing him constantly, and he cannot unsubscribe fast enough. The computer told me I got an email from Nancy Pelosi. It's a terrible Dan Hedaya. It's a really terrible Dan Hedaya, but I appreciate your effort. All right, one more Meg Ryan movie. Are you going to get a perfect score? I mean, that is the question. Can you do it? Can I do it? I feel like what it's going to be one that's sort of a little off consensus of the whole Meg Ryan thing. Actually, is it Joe versus the Volcano? It's not. Okay. So maybe it is off consensus. Is it when a man loves a woman? It is not. All right, give me the year. Uh, we talked about this semi recently, I think. Semi recently, and that like we backlogged so many episodes that it feels like a month since right. we recorded one. Uh, your year is nineteen ninety eight. Ninety eight. Is that same year as you've got mail? So, Proof of Life is 2000. Courage Under Fire is 96. 
Is it French Kiss? It is not French Kiss. French Kiss, I think, is like 96. 96. Okay. 98. Is this something obvious that I'm just like blind spotting? Mm, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's obvious. Like, I don't think the kids today know about this movie, but like, we've definitely talked about it. We've definitely talked about the soundtrack. Um, she is above the title with an actor who is a movie that we have mentioned several times on this episode because of the Oscar race. Oh. An actor. Actor. This is a remake. This is a remake. Tim Rob... Oh, Matt, uh, John Penn. Uh, Perhaps the biggest hint I gave you is the soundtrack. Soundtrack. 98. Remake. Okay, I'm going to go through actors of the movies we've talked about. So, Casino, De Niro... Leaving Las Vegas, Nicolas Cage. This actor won an Oscar this year we've been talking about. Nicolas Cage. Yes. Meg Ryan. Oh, God. I always forget. Not only do I forget this movie a lot besides the soundtrack, but I forget that she's the one in it sometimes. It's City of Angels. City of Angels. Having just watched the now surprisingly controversial Jagged Little Pill documentary at Toronto. Obviously, Alanis is very much in my mind, and uh, her song on City of Angels is wonderful. Yes. Wow, City of Angels. I'm ashamed. I am ashamed. I should have come should up with be. that sooner. Yeah. Should be. Yep. All right. Well, three out of three to start isn't so bad. All right. For you, Chris... I have, I went obviously the Gus Van Sant route and I dipped into his drugstore cowboy. And one of the stars of that film, you mentioned Matt Dillon is one, uh, Kelly Lynch is another, but the one that I have chosen for you is Heather Graham. Oh. Yeah. Okay. The question is, is drugstore cowboy on them? The thing about Heather Graham. Not a ton of movies. Mm-hmm. Not a ton of movies that would maybe show up in an IMDb game. So I'm going to say the obvious ones, Boogie Nights. Yes. Her MTV Movie Award for Boogie Nights. Yes. Uh, breakthrough Performer? She went female performance. I think it was Breakthrough Performer. Okay. Um, uh, Spy Who Shagged Me. Spy Who Shagged Me, yes. I'm going to confirm okay. that Boogie Nights um, award right now. Do I say Scream 2? I'm going to say Scream 2. It's a very small role in Scream 2, which is why it's not on there. Like those are, oh, it's not there. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. Um, it was Best Breakthrough Performance, MTV Movie Awards. I hate this, but I know it's there. I hate that I remember she's in this movie. I want to forget everything about it. The Hangover. Is she in The Hangover? It's not The Hangover. Yes. It's not. But I... Okay. That's a good guess. That's a good remembrance, because I did not remember her being in that movie. Whose girlfriend is she in The Hangover? She she becomes someone's girlfriend. I think it's Ed Helms. Oh, she's the one who, like, they, like... She's a, she's a sex worker, right? And they get together during the course yeah. of the film. 
What a shitty movie. Heather Graham beat at the MTV Movie Awards that year. Uh, Joey Lauren Adams for Chasing Amy. Sarah Michelle Gellar for I Know What You Did Last Summer. Uh, Very interesting that Sarah Michelle Gellar beats out uh, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt for the nomination there. Uh, Rupert Everett in My Best Friend's Wedding. And Jennifer Lopez in Selena. That is a very interesting lineup. lineup. Yeah. Breakthrough performer, gotta say, vote for Jennifer Lopez. Well, yeah, and especially with hindsight, like, that's kind of wild that, uh... But I mean, like, that's a... I I mean, like, that's a big breakthrough performance. It is. Also, Rupert Everett had been working for, like, a decade. Yeah, but not to the minds of any of the MTV audience. Yeah, not to the teens, whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what are my years? Uh, you've only got one strike, right? No, you got two strikes. You said stream two. All right, <clears throat> your yeah. years are 1998 and 1999. Well, shit. I mean, this was the Heather Graham era. Your your years were never going to really right. break out of uh, of this small little window. Oh wait, is one of them Bowfinger? Bowfinger, yes. Cool. That's your 99. <laughs> what the hell? Other movies were there? Um, this film. Sort of famously a failure. Oh, um, uh, 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 the Robert Downey Jr. Two Girls and a Guy movie. No, but that's a very good guess. Damn it. I can't, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember this, so I'm going to need hints. Uh, famously a failure is probably best known for being a historical footnote to a much, much, much bigger movie. Hmm. A much, much, much bigger movie from the year before. 97. Yes. Much, much, much bigger movie in 97, uh, Titanic. <laughs> uh-huh. Minor foot, a 98. <gasps> is she in Lost in Space? Because Lost in Space is the movie that finally broke Titanic's number one streak. It's exactly what I'm talking about. She is. I hate that I got it through that way, but like, I, that's. She's the, that, the that seems right. daughter of the family, the Robinson family in Lost in Space. Who the hell is in that movie? Isn't like. Um, isn't it like Matt LeBlanc is first Matt build LeBlanc. in that movie or something? Matt LeBlanc is in that movie. William Hurt, Mimi Rogers, Gary Oldman is Dr. Smith. Jared Harris is in that film. Okay. Uh, and, and of course, uh, yeah, Heather Graham. Yes, very good. Well done. Good job, IMDb game. That's our episode. That's our episode on To Die For. We had a really good time with it. We hope you guys did, too. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. What are the two things we had asked for? Uh, tell us about A Month by the Lake and tell us about uh, uh, Protocol. What was that Goldie Hawn movie? Protocol. Protocol. Goldie Hawn's Protocol. Protocol. We, we, we beg you. Uh, Chris, where can the listeners... If anybody tells me the right um, plot, the correct actual plot of A Month by the Lake, absolutely not. Automatic block. Yeah, yeah, Chris fake is going to block you. Uh, fake answers only. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? We want real answers for Protocol, though. I want to clarify this. I really want to know your actual stories about Protocol, but not about A Month by the Lake. That's too far. Yeah, A Month by the Lake, not a real movie, so don't tell us what the real right, movie exactly. is. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D, and on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, spelled the same way. 
We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So don't go follow David Cronenberg to an undisclosed location. Write us a nice review instead. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that lets our cheetahs one 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 wild Young and cheetahs run free <laughs> to your be true, right. never be hung up, hung up like Bardem and me. <laughs> God. Okay, that's going in the post show.